This is the Pendulum Land Podcast. Welcome back, infrastructure junkies, to the show. This is a podcast created by right-of-way professionals for right-of-way professionals. The Pendulum Land Podcast is the voice of the right-of-way industry, where your primary source of news, trends, and developments in eminent domain, right-of-way acquisition, and the Uniform Relocation Act. I'm Dave Arnold. And I'm Kristen Bennett. And this is the episode that you've all been waiting for. Is Jake Farrell coming back? No, I don't think Jake Farrell's ever coming back. I wouldn't. (laughs) I don't blame him at all. No, no, no. You'll recall that in season one, we published a podcast called Noah's Arcade Presents Eminent Domain Appraisal. And some of our appraiser friends weren't real happy about it. They were kind of the opposite of happy. Well, you know that all appraisers are very cranky, right? Hey, no, this is what got us in trouble is making these broad general statements about appraisers. Okay, but don't worry. Don't worry. Today is, hey, let's do our extra long drum roll. Let's do it. Settle in, everyone. All right, this is very long. Because it's a very big reveal. Yeah. Please hold. Today is Revenge of the Appraisers. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, In hindsight, like, don't you think maybe we shouldn't, maybe we should not have done a whole entire episode about appraisals without having an appraiser? No, I thought, I think it was fine. I'm a lawyer, which means I'm practically an appraiser myself. At least that's what. Again, can we be careful with those statements? Okay, let's don't do that. But hold on. First, everybody, the Pendulum Land Podcast has a brand new sponsor. We do. Today's episode is brought to you by National Right-of-Way Review Appraisals. NRWRA was founded by David Burgoyne and Brian O'Neill to provide appraisal review and appraisal support services for acquisition agencies and property owners. Specializing in appraisal review, NRWRA serves clients nationwide in markets such as the Midwest, the Pacific Northwest, the Carolinas, and the Mid-Atlantic region. You can learn more about them at nrwra.com. That's nrwra.com. And thank you, nrwa.com, for your support. Now, here's what we have going on. We are not going to make the same mistake twice. So what we did is we invited several expert appraisers to appear on the show. Real appraisers? Real live appraisers. Wow. They don't just play it on TV, and they're not lawyers pretending to be appraisers. They're real appraisers. This is legit. Yes. Our first guest is David Burgoyne, ASA, SRWA. He's a native of Ann Arbor, Michigan, and he graduated from Colgate University in 1981 with a Bachelor of Arts degree in liberal arts with a concentration in physics astronomy? What? I've never known anybody with a concentration in astronomy. I think appraisers are smart. They must be. He's been a real estate appraiser for 37 years, currently or formerly licensed in over a dozen states. He's a principal and review appraiser for NRWRA. He holds his SRWA and RWAC designations through the International Right-of-Way Association, and he's been an IRWA instructor since 1990. In fact, he was the Howard Armstrong Instructor of the Year in 2015, And I think he might not be the only one at this table who received that award. Mm -hmm. Somebody else did. He's an AQB certified USPAP instructor. He's also a scuba diving instructor in case we need that on the show. Wow. He's the father of five, grandfather of four, with one more coming. And he's here in Virginia Beach with us with his wife, Cynthia. We also have with us today Brian O'Neill. 
Brian O'Neill has been a real property appraiser since 1995. He's a Maryland native, but has called Boise, Idaho home for the past 11 years. Brian got his bachelor degree from Towson University in, in interdisciplinary studies with the concentration in, get this, molecular biology. Yeah, these guys what? are smart. His very first appraisal gig was with David Burgoyne, and those two have been working together on and off ever since. And four years ago, they founded National Right-of-Way Review Appraisal together. Brian holds or has held certified general licenses in 11 states. His practice has been focused almost entirely on right-of-way work, concentrating on review appraisal for the past five years. He's earned the Appraisal Institute's General Appraisal Review designation, the IRWA Senior Designation, or the SRWA, and its Appraisal Certification designation, the RWAC. Brian is married to the lovely Rachel Taylor, who he has known since he was just 11 years old. Wow. I don't know. And they have two beautiful children, Katie and Brian. Okay, now David and Brian's invited guest on this episode is Christina Thorson. Now, Christina's purpose in the episode is to sit here in judgment of the entire discussion. That doesn't sound like her. She's like the judge. Okay, okay. Okay, Christina is a counselor in real estate valuation, review, analysis, eminent domain, investing, purchasing and sale, and litigation support since 1986, which I think is before you were born. Not even close. In addition to providing appraisal services for individuals, corporations, and government agencies, Christina is an eminent domain valuation instructor, a frequent presenter at national events, and is serving as the current chair of the International Right-of-Way Association's Valuation Community of Practice. Uh, she can also be found hang gliding mm-hmm. yeah, and dancing at Dave Matthews concerts or being a super mom for her three girls. So, So this is like a really legit episode. Well, yes, too legit to quit. Now... Here's what's going to happen. We've got our super appraisers here, and Christina and David are in person, and we also have our partner, Ross Green. Ross, you mean that guy over there in the corner looking a little nervous? He looks quite nervous. See, what happened was Ross made a few he made a few dozen statements in the prior episode that people took issue with. A, a chicken-sacrificing voodoo comes to mind. So mm. what we're going to do is we're going to unleash the Kraken on Ross Green. And I have bad news for Ross Green. I, I have, like, direct quotes from oh that episode boy. that we're going to have to talk about. All right. Are we ready to go? Let's do it. David Burgoyne, are you ready? I am. Thanks for having me. And Brian, are you ready? I am ready. Let's go. Christina. Yes. All right. Ross. Let's get ready to rumble. Oh, uh, well. Uh, I don't think. They're we're going to get a cease and desist letter over that. Let's see. Okay. So you'll remember that the last appraisal episode we did had a Wayne's World theme. Remember that? Party on, Dave, of course. Party on, party on, Wayne. So is this Wayne's World 2? Well, the problem is that Wayne's World 2 sucked. It was like one of the worst movies ever. It really was. It even had Aerosmith in it, but I couldn't, I actually saw the movie with my parents and couldn't sit through it. Oh, boy. I think they even paid for the tickets. Well, at least you didn't have to pay for the tickets. So are sequels always bad? Yes, sequels are almost always bad. Can anybody think of a movie where a sequel was as good as the original? I can. Oh. Shrek 2. Huh. It was really good. I can think of one where it was better. Oh. Not what? What is it, David? The Empire Strikes Back in 1980. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> Listen, we are not Star Wars fans here. This is uh, not a Star Wars loving podcast. It does not speak for me. These are cultural heathens. 
I love Star Wars. No. It's like the best. I see. See, me and the appraisers are on the same page here. Oh, that's oh, that's oh, the last the time. First. Last time that's going to happen. This is kind of like that scene in Wayne's World where they point to the sign says "No Stairway to Heaven." <laughs> exactly. Well, on the Pendulum <laughs> Pot Land podcast, it's no Star Wars. Do you, yeah. Do you have a sequel that's better than the original? Yeah, Sharknado 2 was better than the original. Right, so Sharknado <laughs> is better than Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Um, so so we can't go with Wayne's World 2 for no. like kind of our theme well, for today? No, this is Revenge of the Appraisers. So let's go with a revenge theme. Have you, have you ever seen a great revenge movie? Anybody got any ideas? Once Upon a Time in the West. I am not familiar with that, Brian. It's a Sergio Leone spaghetti western with um, Henry Fonda as the bad guy, and it's got Charles Bronson and Jason Robard. It's it's brilliant. It's a fantastic movie, and you don't find out what what he's avenging until the very last scene. It's it's or the second to last scene. It's it's spectacular. I'm gonna check that out, David. It is definitely worth checking out. You know, actually, the third Star Wars movie. It was supposed to be called Revenge of the Jedi, and they changed its name to Return of the Jedi, but it's not my favorite movie. Okay, David, two rules. No (laughs) Stairway to Heaven, no Star Wars. All the Star Wars. All the time. Okay, no, I I have... Christina, go ahead. I love Star Wars. Why can't we talk about Star Wars? I'm not going to use the M word. We're not going to use... I know we're not supposed to use that word on the podcast. Uh, You know... Three words while we can't talk about Star Wars. Jar Jar Banks. That's it. You can't even say his <laughs> name right, by the way. What? The, how do you say it? It's Jar Jar Binks. And that's the only time in the world you will ever hear me defend Jar Jar. Okay. Fair enough. All right. No, listen. Best revenge movie ever made. The original. Not They did a sequel in 2010, but the original was from like 1973 called I Spit on Your Grave. That's uh, not that movie right. was terrible the first time and terrible the second time. Uh, Brian, uh, d- you you made a noise. Do you have an opinion on that? Well, I I, th- I think you're right. I think it is a pretty good one, and it's it's kind of opposite the one that that I had, where you you know from the get go exactly what what the avenge situation is, and and but it's it's great. It's terrifying. I think I saw it when I was 12 or 13 or something. You saw that when you were 12. It's filthy, Brian. It's filthy. Yeah, I know, I know. I, you know, I started out early, I think. All right, but David, uh, yes, David has something to say. There was an incredibly good revenge movie that I think was nominated this last year for an Oscar. It was called Promising Young Woman. Did you see it? I heard about it, and I, I haven't watched it. It's been on my list. It's really good. It's sort of a Me Too revenge thing, but it's really uh, good. Oh, well, there, a woman revenge movie is kind of another level. There's one with... Uh, it's. It's Jennifer Lopez, and I'm not a J-Lo oh, fan boy. at all. I really can't stand her most of the time. I think it's called Enough, where she's, like, got an abusive husband or partner, and so she, like, goes and trains in, like, hand-to-hand combat, and then he comes back, and she kicks his ass. You can't say ass on she the podcast. But All right, Ross, what do you think? God, that movie's terrible. I've been forced to watch it several times in the gym riding the bike. Like, I mean... Oh. No, would you have a revenge movie? We weren't asking for your commentary. Oh, well, Mel Gibson got canceled, but I've always been a particular fan of Payback by Mel yes, Gibson. Yes, yes, sir. That was a good one. Mel Gibson's have had several revenge movies, I, I think. mean, if you're going to ha- take revenge on somebody, although this happens to him, but, I mean, if you're going to put somebody on a concrete floor and hit their toes with a ball-peen hammer, 
I mean, that's really taking. I think I think David Burgoyne's going to do that to you today in this podcast. What's the Liam Neeson one? The I will find you and I will whatever. Or Taken Two or Taken Three. Were those sequel, are those four. good sequels and revenge movies? No, but by oh, the time they get that far, you think he's just a bad father. Or Sh- Sharknado 8. Okay. And, and there's 10 other Liam Neeson movies all with exactly the same plot. Good point. He, he should have just quit after Love Actually. That was his. That was the epitome. <laughs> all Probab- right. Probably. Well, he was in Star Wars too. Uh. <laughs> now, okay, for this episode, one of the things we want to do is we want to cover three basic themes in Revenge of the Appraisers. All right? Number one theme is an appraiser beholden to the person or company who pays his or her bill. You want to just give me a quick answer to that, Christina? What do you think? No, which is why I collect my fee up front. Uh, oh, David, good answer. No, we're beholden to the truth. Oh, boy. And Brian, what do you say? Absolutely not. Oh, brother. Ross? If you didn't give results that were appropriate for the industry client that you work for, you wouldn't keep getting hired. Oh, Oh, he went there. He went there. Nope. Okay. All right. Second theme. Second theme. Buckle up. Can the appraisal methodologies be manipulated? And we talked about three basic methodologies in the last one. Can they be manipulated, David? Well, yes, they can be. Thank you. Brian? Certainly. Christina? Absolutely. And Ross, Should they be? it's not science. It doesn't get uniform results with the same input. Okay. And then the third theme, are they in fact manipulated in eminent domain cases? Ross. Pretty much every time, Dave, by the landowner's appraiser. Brian. I presume that to be the truth. What? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> David, are they manipulated? I'm sorry, counselor. I can't answer that question, yes or no. Okay. He's like, one, two, three, four. That's a yes. That's like pleading the fifth, right? You you plead the fifth means I did it. Christina? It depends. Oh, brother. Is this relocation? What's happening? Yeah, it depends. That sounds like a lawyer answer That's also the fifth. All right, let's talk a little bit. What we hit on last time is, you know, uh, you have all kinds of appraisals. Sometimes you have what's called a bank appraisal where a bank hires an appraiser. And back in the day, the appraiser like just drove by the house so that somebody could get financing, never went, never did an inspection. Sometimes they didn't even drive by. They just put a number on it. I think maybe, Dave, you're hanging out with the wrong kind of appraisers. <laughs> well, you, I'm hanging out with you right now. Fair. I was invited. However, most appraisers aren't like that. Okay. So, but is there a difference between a bank appraisal or a regular appraisal and an eminent domain appraisal? David. Well, before I answer that, I want to just comment that there are, of course, bad appraisers, but the fact there are some bad appraisers doesn't define it to find us all. I mean, there are ambulance chaser lawyers. Uh, easy. This is not oh, a law episode. And, and just because <laughs> half the appraisers are ambulance chasers, half the attorneys are ambulance chasers. Uh, oh, easy. Easy. That they all are. <laughs> anyway, th- there's no such thing as a regular appraisal. There's all different kinds of appraisals. They all have different definitions, different assignment conditions. They have different intended uses and intended users. They're all different. There's no regular appraisal. And lots of them involve hypotheticals, like eminent domain does. So there's a difference, but there's a difference between all types 
of appraisals. And done properly, you use the right assignment conditions and the right definitions and all that, and eminent domain appraisals aren't any different than anyone else once you take that into account. All right, yeah. I, I'm going to go ahead. Your highball appraisal, your lowball appraiser, your extra cheap, I didn't do anything appraisal. Like, yeah, you got your various types of appraisal. Wow, Ross. Were you harmed by an appraiser as a child? <laughs> you touched me inappropriately, Christine. Okay, that's edit, getting edited. Edit. Edit. Hit the edit button. All right, I, I, hold on. I'm going to cut to the quick here because I've been to some meetings and, and, and I, with the IRWA and, and tried to explain to, what was, explain to the audience what was happening in our jurisdiction. It's a simple fact that... The appraiser's opinion benefits its client, or if it comes in the other direction, harms the client, and the client is paying for that opinion. Isn't there an inherent inherent bias by the appraiser to deliver either a high number or a low number? Because I'm, from the lawyer's perspective, Every single judge will tell you, hey, Mr. Arnold, the jury's going to hear your number and the jury's going to hear the other lawyer's number and then they're going to come up with something in between. And so if you've got a, a, a very honest number like I always do and then you have some highball number, they're going to split the difference at something hundreds of thousands of dollars over the real value of the property. That, that isn't, see, that isn't true because if you have an opinion, whether it's a low opinion or a high opinion, and it's not credible, jury's not going to buy it. They don't care about just splitting the difference. They don't care about the letters after your name. They care about your opinion being credible, and, they mo- and they're motivated to believe it. And if they don't believe it, they're not going to split the difference like that. So you have to have credible opinions. But there's, there's perfectly good reasons, actually, for appraisals for the property owner being different than appraisals for the condemning authority because there are different assignment conditions. Okay, then answer me this, smart guy, okay? <laughs> How come I've been involved in cases where the two two different opinions of value were more than $10 million apart? How can that happen? It's easy how that can happen. First of all, there are differences in opinions of highest and best use, difference in opinions about whether something's damaged or not. But there are also, like I said, differences in assignment conditions. The condemning authority might instruct their appraiser that certain things are not compensable, but the property owner's lawyer is not going to say, consider that non-compensable. We're going to go prove that as law. So you have, you have differing assignment conditions even, and, and that could result in huge differences. And neither person's wrong because they're appraising it under different conditions. Ross, didn't we have a case where the difference in opinion was like 15 or 16 million? I mean, that one, there was one where it was what, 20? Yeah, they were like at 22 or 24, and we were at three. It was 35. Yeah, how does that happen? And I I hear what you're saying, David. Somebody else explain this to me. Well, I'd love to know more about the facts in that case because if, in fact, like David said, the highest and best use was a different answer by those two appraisers, or if one appraiser considered damages and the other appraiser did not, that would certainly reveal a vast difference in the number. It wasn't. Well, we don't instruct our appraisers not to consider things. That's not how we do business. What actually happened was their theory was that they had to tear down half of a building and rebuild it on a different part of the site, which of course they never actually did and just pocketed the money. Well, and, and the, you know, I hear, I hear what everybody's saying, 
I mean, I do relocation, so I'm just happy when you guys say what's personal property and what's not. But if you if you have a landowner appraiser and you have a, someone who's doing the appraisal for the government entity, like, is the landowner appraiser ever going to come in lower? What happens there, and, and you don't see this, is that we get inquiries from property owners' attorneys, and we tell them they don't have a case. Or we tell them... Go in and ask for an extra five or ten grand and get me paid a thousand bucks for telling you that. Well, that's because you're honest. Thank you. There is that. So you have to have an honest appraiser in order to have a good result. How refreshing. How refreshing. Go ahead, David. I cut you off. No, no, that was really the only point I wanted to make. But 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 Baras, you're you're you may not give instructions to the appraisers. The condemning authorities do. The the highway departments, the Department of Transportation, have lists of things called non-compensable items. And an appraiser doing work for those road commissions or highway departments, departments of transportation, are told they cannot consider circuity of traffic. They cannot consider um, diversion of traffic. There, there are certain things they're instructed that they can't consider. And so even if you as attorneys, you might not even be involved at that point, aren't giving instructions. The authority is. And the property owner's attorney is not going to do that. He's going to say, it's, it's damaging them. It's hurting them. I want you to consider it. So the same appraiser has different assignment conditions. You might have a different date of value. You might have a, 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 an appraiser, an attorney who the appraiser is told, tells the appraiser, excuse me, tells the appraiser, we have an early day to take. We're going to prove there's an effective early day to take. Use the early day to take. There are, there are differences that can make the exact same appraiser come up with different numbers for the same property because of assignment conditions. And it has nothing to do with sacrificing chickens. Yes, it does. It, well, that depends on the religious bent of the appraiser involved. But, <laughs> but the, it's the attorney sacrificing the chickens because he's giving what? us the instructions. Shots fired. <laughs> Go ahead, Ross. Well, uh, David's point isn't refutable in the sense that it's possible to have different assignment conditions for appraisers, but that's not what I'm getting at. Under the same assignment conditions, you don't get the same result from different appraisers, which is my primary beef with it. They call it the Uniform Standards of Professional Appraisal Practice, which is just a farce of a name because you don't get uniform results or uniform conduct. Not in eminent domain, you don't. <laughs> but the uniform standards don't address... in. It, it, they hardly address how you do appraisals. They address the form of the report and they address ethical issues, but they don't say you appraise something a given way or there's, there's like next to no instructions in that document about how you actually do an appraisal. Thank you for voluntarily proving my next point. Oh, but, right. oh, Hold but on. all they say is you have to use generally recognized techniques. But, but Christina's point's really good. If there's a difference of opinion of highest and best use, that can cause a 10 times different in value. And two people can have two different opinions about highest and best use. And that's one of the things that happens a lot. It's not, it's not that they're just using, you know, uh, one's a little higher, one's a little lower. They have, they're appraising it completely different because their underlying opinion about the highest best use or the need to tear down the building is different. That makes sense. Yeah, but they're appraising it differently and picking different highest and best use because they have different clients, and the interest of the landowner oh. is to make it as high as possible. And so that's why they'll choose the highest value, even if it's a farce. So what, so what comes first, the chicken voodoo or the chicken voodoo egg? Is oh, that what well, you're saying? I mean, ultimate chicken voodoo, like things like appraisal by linear square foot of frontage for a car dealership that was actually a golden skillet. Okay, we'll get into we'll <laughs> that. True story. Hey, 
Brian, Brian, we haven't heard from you in a minute. What do you think about all this? Well, I'm just shell shocked by all. I, I, Ross is just—I I really feel like he's been shown the wrong path as far as the appraiser profession goes. And uh, I also think that he thinks that there's an inherent value for every property that that is discoverable by anyone. And I, I don't think that that's the reality. Like you said earlier, it's not a science. So you just don't, you're not going to get the same outputs with all the same inputs. And that's part of the art of appraisal. Ross, you don't put on a expert artist in court cases. You don't put on an expert painter, uh, maybe about technique, reproducible scientific subjects, but there's no case that turns on the artistic value of a painting. Like, and if this is, we're putting on expert artist appraisers, then you're outside the realm of expert testimony that actually has a functional, testable, admissible expertise. It's just, oh, well, my art, I mean, your art could literally be a polished globe stuck on a pillar in your yard or a yard gnome. Like, I can't debate you about whether you think it's art or not. You'll have to see Thor's yard gnomes. We have a lot of those at our house. But there are actually personal property appraisers that do appraise art and testify to that or the name of Michael Jackson or a baseball. I'm not talking about valuing it. I'm talking about whether it's art or whether it's science because art, you can't really prove or disprove whether something is art. That's whether you think it's art or not. Dave has this hideous, like half rotting taxidermied bass, right? Dude, my dad caught that in 1968. That's a family heirloom. (laughs) Okay. But you're not, you're not contending it's art. No, it's a fish from okay. 1968. Thank you, because somebody could be like, oh, no, it's art. Like, I like the moth holes in the tail. Like, it's that's not, like, a thing, man. Like, art is in the eye of the beholder. Science and expertise subject to admission in a court process and analysis under appropriate standards and rules are things that should be able to be cross-examined which is why an appraisal, it just falls back on no matter how absurd what they have to say is. Well, it's just my opinion. Yeah, David. Well, you're, you're mischaracterizing, first of all, the, the use of the word art. You're using it very narrowly. And what, what we mean by art is that not everything is a detailed, empirical thing like a DNA test that says that, you know, you're the murderer with one chance in 12 trillion. It's um, you have to think about what we do as appraisers, which is we have to determine our opinion of the market value, which is based on the perception of market participants. It's not based on some kind of detailed science that could be done by Sir Isaac Newton. And when to put yourself in the mind of a market participant, you have to talk to investors, talk to buyers, talk to sellers. There's all kinds of objective, I'm not going to say subjective, but there's all kinds of objective opinions that one gets based on all the time one spends appraising real estate, talking to market participants that fall short of what you think of as science, like the DNA test. For example, it's not whether the one school district tests higher than the other school district. It's not the math. It's does the market perceive of the one school district being better than the other school district? And that's something that, sure, maybe you could do a big, huge, multi-hundred-thousand-dollar study to prove, but you don't have the time or the money to do that. You need to, as an appraiser, be able to evaluate the market data, evaluate what you know about the markets and apply expertise, which is not 
hard science like you're doing your PhD in molecular biology. And that's what you're missing. We're putting ourselves in the mind of a market participant. People complain we make adjustments that are subjective or objective, but that are not numerical. Well, people don't do that when they're buying a house. They don't go, I'm going to pay 5% more for this house because it has a three-car garage. I'm going to pay exactly $5,000 more for this house because it has a fireplace. It's market perception. There's a, there's a story I like to tell. The small town with a house in it that everyone thinks is haunted and it can't sell for half what it should. Well, if the market perceives it as being haunted, it affects its value. And you don't have to believe in ghosts for that to be true. Well, and it, it begs the question, I mean, if, if, if appraisal weren't an art, couldn't you just like put a bunch of data in a computer and print out a sheet and come up with an appraiser that was the same every time? Yeah, we don't need you guys. We can create, wait a minute, we wait. can create an app for this. Well, they probably <laughs> save there a lot of money. already are several, and they're far more reliable than paying an appraiser, frankly. Oh, oh boy. Oh, oh boy. boy. Hey, uh, we, we've talked kind of broadly right so far about uh, appraisals and, and our differing opinions here and Ross's very strong opinions. I want to talk about some specifics. Can we do that? Yeah, let's move. I was going to say, they do have therapy for that bad appraiser experience that you had. <laughs> you want to edit that out since we're editing out the previous part? We'll see. <laughs> okay, so in the last episode, uh, the uh, revenge, the the eminent domain appraisals. Yes, eminent domain appraisals that kind of got us in hot water in the first place. Um, we talked about the comparable sales approach method. Ross had a couple things to say about this. I'm going to read you his quotes, and then uh, David, Brian, Christina. I'd love to hear. Well, first, Ross, I'd like to know if you stand by your quotes. What you said is. And I quote, it's imminent domain appraisal. Therefore, we'll just make the number be whatever we want it to be. Well, I think you're End quote. cherry picking that out in the context that I don't necessarily think there is such a thing as eminent domain appraisal separate from appraisal. Like There is appraisal, and this is an appraisal under certain terms on a certain date. It's a retrospective appraisal. That doesn't mean that eminent domain appraisal is special. Usually I find people alleging the existence of eminent domain appraisal to be landowner attorneys. Kristen, what's, what did he have another quote? He did quote. They just make it up. End quote. All right, Brian, you've been quiet for a while. What do you think about that? Well, the, the testability of the, of the theory of the appraisal <clears throat> that the appraiser brings to you is, is somewhat, dictated by the quantity and quality of information that they have at hand. If you're doing class A office towers in downtown Manhattan, then you're gonna be able to make adjustments pretty precisely to your property. And if you're doing a, you know, 250,000 acre farm in the middle of, you know, Withville, Virginia or something, you're gonna have trouble making adjustments to the comparables that you have because your comparables aren't going to be any good. So, you know, th those, there are, there are considerations that need to be made. The other thing is that when you're doing an, the appraisal in a partial taking situation of a property in the after situation, it's always a hypothetical. So there's always room for, you know, debate and argument. And, and that's where you're going to get your $10 million differentials. It, it's Brian, that's, that's excellent. 
Well, of course you're congratulating your own partner. Well, How self-serving <laughs> can you be, David? Come on. Somebody's got to do it. <laughs> well, but let me let me expand on that just a touch, okay. just a tad. Not only are the after situations hypothetical, you find yourself having to appraise property in circumstances that wouldn't normally exist. Nobody builds property intentionally too close to the road. Nobody intentionally places a house next to the sewage treatment plant. Nobody intentionally builds the retail strip center with half as much parking as it needs. So the, the very nature of partial takings has us end up with properties that you don't have lots of examples. Like sometimes you get lucky but, and you find one, but you don't have lots of examples of situations like that that exist. And that, that's an extension of what Brian, the point Brian was making. And additionally, when you do find that one data point that seems to um, prove your point with with your appraisal, you you find the, the the shopping center with half the parking that's sold. You still only have one data point, and that you're dealing with irrational market participants. One data point is it reasonable? That's the best you're going to do. So that's part of the thing we do when we're doing reviews is to make sure that it's reasonable, is it credible? It's again, it's the quantity and quality of data that you have. And sometimes that's the that's the best you're gonna do. And and then perhaps the court has to decide, but the appraiser yeah. has to have an opinion and basically- I think, you know, for appraisal review and as appraisers when we're doing our job, we're supposed to make sure that that report is complete, that it's accurate, that it's adequate, that it's relevant, and it's reasonable, and that the evidence we've relied upon can come to some reasonable conclusion. We have to rely on evidence, so we really can't just make it up. The interesting part of this panel is that we have a room full of competent, ethical, condemning authority appraisers, and we don't have any sort of pie-in-the-sky men like landowner appraisers well, present. I I, I appraise for landowners, too. Uh-oh. Yeah. But you don't appraise solely for landowners, which is what we usually deal with. True. All right, David. Well, I was going to say, uh, I probably appraise more for landowners than I do for condemning authorities. I do do both, but I probably appraise in my separate appraisal business, not, not when we do lots of tons of work for the condemning authorities. But you have to work for lawyers who are honest and ethical, so that's a big prop to begin with. You know, you got to find the ethical, honest lawyer, and you have to work for condemning authorities. Where, where do you find Is one that of those? Hard? Right, it's like that's the, another episode. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's like the it's like the the couple that got killed on their on their at the right after driving home from their uh, uh, their rehearsal dinner, and they asked Saint Peter if they could get married up in heaven because they were going to get married the next day, and he came back after like two weeks and said, "I, you know, I, you know, I, I can get you married now." And like, well, we thought about this. What happens if we later want to get divorced. St. Peter says, well, you know, it took me two weeks up here in heaven to find a minister. How long do you think it's going to take me to find a lawyer? <laughs> I mean, I stand by that. The world would be a better place if all the lawyers got put on the bottom of the ocean. But what the, what is happening right This episode of the Pendulum Land Podcast is brought to you by the generous support of National Right-of-Way Review Appraisal. And that's our friends and guests, David Burgoyne and Brian O'Neill. Did you know that Brian and David have over 60 years of combined experience and have completed thousands of right-of-way appraisal reports, and they've completed nearly a thousand right-of-way appraisal reviews in their careers? The NRWRA team has the education, 
experience, and expertise to navigate the most complex assignments. And as reviewers, they work tirelessly with your appraisers to effectively complete your project. The Pendulum Land Podcast crew works with these guys in the real world, and you won't find a better team to meet your appraisal needs. That is absolutely correct. The NRWRA's thorough appraisal review process is an excellent way to screen out ethical problems and to find appraisals with inadequate support, whether performed by condemning authorities or property owners. While they certainly concentrate on required Uniform Act reviews for condemning authorities up front, they're also capable of critically reviewing the other side's report, read landowner, after litigation is commenced. Yeah, a national right-of-way review appraisal could perform a review function to help eliminate some of Ross's issues with appraisals with inadequate or no support. These guys don't use chicken-sacrificing voodoo and Ouija boards. These guys are legit. That's exactly right. The things you're hearing about on today's podcast, that means Ross's concerns on this podcast, they don't exist with David and Brian. That's why we work with them in the real world. For more information, you should check them out. You can find them at nrwra.com. That's nrwra.com. Hey, can we go on to another one? Yeah, go. Chrissy, go. All right. We also talked about, on our last appraisal episode with no appraisers present, we talked about the income approach, or as Ross calls it, the nest of snakes. Now, this is... Did you say now or meow? I said meow. Meow. Now, this is maybe... Probably, definitely, the the quote of the episode that maybe got us in the most trouble. And what Ross said about the income approach or the nest of snakes approach, if you will, is, quote, the capitalization rate is basically like chicken sacrificing voodoo, man. You get there with a Ouija board and some chicken entrails and you move it around and a demon makes the number appear in blood, end quote. <laughs> I stand by this. Okay. Do, uh, okay. First of okay. all, I would like to say, Ross, I'm pretty sure that you made that up on the spot. And just for creativity alone, like you get a 10 out of 10. But I'm not sure that all the appraisers like that quote. David? Well, my wife and I do have six chickens, but that varies depending on how complicated my assignments are. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> um, what you're missing here is that do appraisers make up cap rates? Yes. But there are fully three separate ways. Of course ways. they of make course. them up. You but have not, to make it up. No, but but it's not good, appra- good appraisers. That's not true. See, good appraisers don't. There are fully three separate places to find market-supported cap rates. Ouija boards, chicken sacri- sacrificing voodoo, and entrails? And a house Is of that, pain. And a demon. Don't leave out the seance. Uh, oh, and a okay. seance, oh, yeah. Okay. Um, no, there's there's there's... Market comparables. One can actually find income property that sells. And published market data services list capitalization rates for actual properties that sell that can be derived directly from the market. Two, there are multiple sources, which will remain nameless since they didn't sponsor the episode, of, of, um, <laughs> of published sources of capitalization rates that appraisers use all the time. And they're specific to regions, cities, property types, so that there's not just individual comps, there's published sources. And three, one can, just like you do with a market, with a direct sales comparison, one can talk to market participants. You could, you're doing a retail strip center, why not call two or three of your retail strip center clients and say, what kind of cap rate are you buying properties at today? So there's fully three separate places that appraiser who's doing their job can derive capitalization rates. 
I, I don't think I've done an appraisal in 20 plus years that didn't have one or more of those reasons, those sources in there to support a capitalization. Uh, rate. Remote, we are not here to indict David Burgoyne about uh, his crimes versus capitalization rates, however. And I also don't deny that there are published data sources available. However, generally, what we receive is, how did you determine this capitalization rate? It's my opinion. Well, how did you determine that you moved the capitalization rate in the after to increase the amount of alleged damage? Oh, that's also my opinion. Did you look at any published sources? No. Do you have anything in your work file? Uh, the only thing in your work file appears to be the names of several people you didn't talk to specifically about this project that you talked to 10 years ago. Okay. Um, <laughs> Yes. Well, that seems to be a wonderful basis for, I'm assuming the demon wrote that number in blood for you when you rolled some, like, And we're dice. back to the quote. Oh, oh, now there's dice. Now there's dice. Cool, cool. God doesn't roll dice. Albert Einstein. <laughs> the, an appraiser is not God, Dave Arnold. <laughs> so why don't you have the appraiser who did that, why don't you, why don't you talking to him about this? Because even, even what you're talking about, changing a cap rate for risk, can be justified objectively. Now, I don't disagree that appraisers do that. And part of Brian's and my job is making sure that people's opinions and appraisals are supported. But if there is something which is clearly an obvious source of additional risk and the market reflects that source of additional risk, it's reasonable to change the capitalization rate because risk is one of the elements of selecting a capitalization rate. So isn't there a bit coming up for cross-examination. You want to get off this topic? Wait a minute, wait a minute. What is that sound? Ladies and gentlemen, it is time for cross-examination with Dave. If you haven't played this before, which you guys haven't, uh, you are going to be cross-examined by Dave Arnold. He's going to ask some rapid-fire questions. Uh, you have to answer them in one sentence or less, unless you don't, and then, you know, whatever. Are you ready? Meow, 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 meow. Okay. Cross-examination with Dave is with our friends, David Burgoyne and Brian O'Neill. Brian, are you ready? I'm ready. David, are you ready? Couldn't be more ready. Okay, David, first question. Oysters. Do you prefer them raw on the half shell or steamed? And if you say steamed, you have to get up and leave. I prefer them raw with mignonette sauce. What? Yes, that's the vinegary oh, thing. I told okay. you they were heathens. These guys are one for one. Brian, are you ready? I'm ready. All right, question. Exactly how many more chickens do you have to sacrifice to do a commercial <laughs> appraisal instead of a residential appraisal? About 4,000. Gee, that's, that's a all, lot of chickens. I thought you said like seven or eight. Okay. Okay. Wow. Wow. We no we, wonder it costs that much. You got to buy a whole like barn full of chickens to do a commercial <laughs> report. <laughs> David Burgoyne, your next question. I understand that you were an astrophysics major. So what's my daily horoscope? Uh, <laughs> obviously, you're mistaking astronomy from astrology. They're the same thing. Well, no, I can calculate the position of all the planets and stars in, at your birth, but I can't interpret it. So I could, I could tell you, you know, what house and what's rising, but I couldn't tell you what it means. Mercury would you, was in retrograde. Would you like to read my palm? <laughs> Smell my finger? Just don't pull, <laughs> don't his, pull finger. his finger. Don't pull his finger, right. Can you get that edit button ready? No. Okay. Brian, are you ready? Yes. Brian, 
does USPAP require that you keep your Ouija board in your work file? Uh, it, it absolutely does. Yes. Does it require that you keep the supporting demon in your work file? Ross, this is cross-examination with Dave, not cross-examination with Ross. Well, one needs to consult your eight ball to determine whether you need to keep your Ouija board in your file. Oh, gosh. Now we've added dice it and It doesn't an have ball. to be in the file, but I just have, I have to have access to it. That's, <laughs> this is off the rails. Okay. All right, David, are you ready? It's your turn. Are you ready? I'm ready. David Burgoyne, I understand that you were once a contestant on Jeopardy. So let's give you a Jeopardy question, okay? Okay. Question, uh, Jeopardy question. Actually, that would be an answer. Okay, here's the answer. This usually false classification of property is frequently applied to justify utilization of the cost approach in order to inflate an eminent domain appraisal. Do, do, what do, is special do. purpose? Yes, oh, he got God. it! Oh. He admits it. <laughs> all right, all right. Chrissy hit the wrong button there. Brian, last cross-examination with Dave question. Are you ready? I am ready. Brian, would you rather give Ross Green a pink belly, put him in a headlock, or give him a wet willy? I think wet willy. Absolutely. The yes. finger in the ear. All right. I, I, all right. All right. He, he, has those, he has those headphones on right now, and I've just been, like, wondering what's underneath them the whole time I've been watching <laughs> Okay, ladies and gentlemen, this has been Cross Examination with Dave. All right. Well, whew, I'm kind of spent after that. Take a break. We... Let's, let's talk about your least favorite approach and what was said about it in our last episode, which is the cost approach. Oh, gosh, I hate the cost approach. Guess what? We have some Ross quotes. We have, one, we have two Ross quotes on this one. Are you ready, guys? Quote. Cost estimation is its own deep world of lies and nonsense, end quote. Ross Green also said, quote, your depreciation is complete nonsense, end quote. I stand by these comments. Okay, so that's oh, right. Ross stands by these. You guys have anything to say? Oh, boy. I, I have a lot to say. I, I don't disagree that the cost approach has limited application, but the truth of the matter is it has important application in certain circumstances like the jeopardy question indicated when you do truly have a special purpose property which do actually exist maybe not as often as your opponents like to claim dave but the cost approach is appropriate if the market actually substitutes by building replacements or if it's a special purpose property that you don't have a market for like a specialized factory or something, the cost approach is essential. It's a direct application of the principle of substitution. So there are times when it's necessary, and it's not a bunch of nonsense. There are good, solid, non-subjective ways to estimate costs and to estimate depreciation. Yes, the, the, the cost services we use have a tendency to be a little bit loosey-goosey, but you can use cost comparables. I once appraised the law school that I went out and found the three most recent law schools that were constructed in the United States on a square foot basis. One could hire an actual cost estimator, a, 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 an engineer, an architect, someone who really builds buildings. So you can certainly come up with cost estimations which are not nonsense, Ross. And the same is true with depreciation. One, sometimes you have properties that don't deserve any depreciation. And in a situation where you have a 
cost of cure issue or a substitution of some special purpose part of somebody's property, depreciation shouldn't even be applicable. Okay, hold on. Listen, buildings are not wine, okay? They don't get better with age, like wine and women. So what are you what are you saying? No, no, I agree with his last point. That that's completely valid. What is happening here? No, no stop no, doing no. that. David Burgoyne is a gentleman and a scholar that lives in an ivory tower on top of Mount Everest. Like <laughs> now Plus, you do have some great quotables, I'll give you that. Now, down here, like in the gutter where lawyers operate, these things <laughs> that he's just said don't occur. You don't find the appraiser that goes out and does what he just said. And hey, Constructing this building, I actually went out and found the actual construction cost for this building. Oh, no. Oh, no. What you get is, oh, I hired my engineer that works out of his house and has never been hired by anybody but an eminent domain attorney in the last 20 years, and he swags some insane numbers that you could build the Taj Mahal for for this garage. And there, here's your, here's your alleged number, not actual good costs or... And, I mean, he said loosey-goosey. I mean, my Lord, some of the cost services for this thing, like, that you can use are about as, def- like, just completely indefensible and senseless, particularly compared, like, to current market cost data, given that current market cost data is absurd. Um, I mean, it's not helpful to our position that right now the cost of plywood will blow your hair back. Uh, so it's <laughs> meaning meaning it will cost you as much to build a garage as to build the Taj Mahal. I mean, that's foot entirely <laughs> potentially valid given the current cost of plywood. But I'm talking about a specific time in well in the past before this current uh, situation came up where Dave and I got a a cost estimate for what was nothing more than a concrete block shed that you could have built a small skyscraper for. Uh, regardless, because you can um, it's, it's do it right. That, yeah, it's irregardless. irregardless. Use proper grammar, Get Ross. Get out of here, heathens. Just because <laughs> you can do it right doesn't mean that it is generally done right. Brian, do you have anything to say about that? Well, since we're at the end of the the, the three different approaches and we've we've nitpick the pros and cons of each. I, I think you need to also step back and Christina had a, had a yeah, had a great quote from one of her instructors at one time. I'll let you I'll let her tell that if she recalls it. But you'll find in an appraisal that each of the three methods for determining value typically do not create the same number. You you know, so you have to look at the strengths and weaknesses of what you have for the cost approach, income, sales comparison approach. And then you have to um, determine which one is your strongest and and do a little balancing. And that's part of the art of the appraisal. Christina, yeah, what I, was will, that? Oh. I will say, when I started in this business 35 some odd years ago, I was taking a class at the University of Georgia uh, back when the Go class, dogs. Right? Sick, I'm woof woof. And I had two instructors. I think they were both from Texas. Between them had 100 years of appraisal experience. And the one fellow during class one day said, by God, people, we have only three approaches. Use them all. Yeah. That's a great quote. Instead, you say that the car garage that's the same as every other car garage for two miles in either direction down the road is a special purpose property, so special that you don't need to use either of the other approaches at all because they would be unreliable and not provide credible results so that you can just use the cost approach. Or how about you just use the cost approach for, what else? A golden skillet, a bar, 
Um, what else can we look at that we've used that I've seen people use the cost approach before because it was so incredibly special that it's in the same realm as an oil refinery or a steakhouse, oh, yeah. a steakhouse, oh, yeah. a steakhouse which became that which they, became a funeral home. Yeah, that they put a they took a they took a steakhouse and stuck they saved a, a lot of money on meat. Yeah, a metal <laughs> church on the end of a steakhouse, and then they de- church. They declared it a funeral home, and then therefore it became so special that you had to use the cost approach because you really want to be buried in the former. What was it like? Rodeo steak. Yeah, it was like a rodeo steakhouse, and you ate peanuts and got to throw the shells on the floor. Did it still have a drive-through? Well, the best part (laughs) it did actually it did was when they retrofitted the kitchen into the mortuary because it had plumbing, and you need a lot of water to embalm people. Apparently, no. Oh, and that one was even better that the cost or the sales comparison approach wasn't appropriate and the cost approach was appropriate, even though that same entity had bought a funeral home within the appraisal period, like within a few years of the date of take in the market area. But that didn't count. See? (laughs) Well, you know, I can't defend one bad apple. That stuff happens. The idea is, though, that it's, it's more not, than more than one, David. More than one, but go ahead. It's most. Yeah. It's it's Easy. not. It's not most. It's not most. Yeah, I can't imagine that David and Brian and I are the only three ethical appraisers that work in the eminent domain space, landowner or con- condemning side. Is that can't be true? We, when we do review, I, I I've seen dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of appraisers and and their reports, and they're all striving to be ethical they're you know sometimes they're not correct and you know sometimes i'm not correct but you know i I don't see this this broad based basically fraud almost that you're suggesting i I don't see that at all i I think maybe david was onto something earlier when he said maybe you guys are hanging out with the wrong appraisers but hey these aren't our appraisers they're not ours no listen we have another bit and guess what dave this ain't our bit what what this is a bit has has been brought to us by our sponsor noah's arcade no, the, Noah's Arcade did not sponsor this episode. It's in oh. our WRA. And uh, we have a little bit called Trivia with David Burgoyne. We don't have music, but go. <laughs> so um, on multiple occasions in this podcast, uh, Dave Arnold has suggested that he is a great expert on film and music that... Um, between 1975 and 1999. And uh, as you indicated earlier, I'm a bit of a trivia nerd. And so I wrote some trivia questions that I'm going to first ask you, Dave, to answer. And then once, if you don't get the answers, I'll open it up to the peanut gallery. I can't Uh, wait. I can't wait. Oh, Jesus. So I have three questions that relate to film and music between 1975 and 1999, since you're living in the last century. Okay. I've answered a question number one, disco. Um, I'm not going to ask you about Comiskey Park. You thought I was going to ask you about the burning of Comiskey Park? But go ahead. Go ahead with your questions. Okay, they all, these all deal with winners. First question, it deals with 1980. That's not too, too early for you, right? Miracle on Ice. Is that the answer? No. Stop trying to jump the gun. Your Montreal bu- Olympics. You're buzzing in too early. Oh, sorry. Two songs. spent Each spent six weeks at number one on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1980. Name them both, or name one of them. Uh, pop music by M, and Thriller by Billie Jean. Thriller by Billie Jean. Billie Jean. <laughs> mm. 
I he buzzered, just buzzered myself. himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Great question. Hold on. So 1980, uh, David, I was like 13, okay? Two songs, My Sharona by The Knack. Nope. That was 79. Don't Bring Me Down by ELO. Nope. How many guesses does he get? As many as I want. I'll give you a little hint. They're, 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 the two of them are some pretty completely different genres, despite the fact they're both in the Billboard Top 100. Another One Bites the Dust by Queen. Nope. Jeez. Should we open it I up? I love Freddie Mercury. Uh, everybody loves Freddie. Okay. Me Should too. I open it up? Open it up yeah, to the peanut gallery? Great question. Ross was not born yet, so he doesn't know. Kristen wasn't born yet, yes, so I, she... I was two. Oh, okay. You, you were two born or you were two years old? I was two years old. <laughs> Also, I was too. I was too. And I was two years old. All right, Christina, you got any ideas? I got nothing. I was just starting high school. Can you give us a hint? Um, okay. One of them is by a band that was headlined by a woman, and one of them was by a solo man. Okay. Elvis Presley. No. What? <laughs> I think he was dead by Pretty then. Pretty sure he, he died on the he toilet was. long before that. Three, three so. years before that. 77, okay. I think. All right. So it was Blondie. Blondie Call must me be. by Blondie? Yeah. Call me by Blondie. Oh, Six Brian, weeks? Got it? That song sucked. Wow, I love that song. Okay. And the other, give us a hint on the other one, Dave. The other one was by a, a, a solo male artist in a completely different sort of genre. Was it like BJ Thomas or something random? I don't know. I'm not sure who B.J. Thomas is. Lucky you. (laughs) Okay, I'll give you another big hint. Okay. This is not the person who performed it in 1980, but the song was written by Lionel Richie. Of the Commodores? That that Lionel Richie. But 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 he didn't record. He recorded this song like 20 years later. All right, love will keep us together. No, I give up. That's Captain and Tennille. No, it's Neil Sedaka. It's Lady by Kenny Rogers. Oh, oh, that no. was six no. weeks at number one. That's a great song. Oh. Okay. Okay. The, the <laughs> next question. The next one is a film question. Okay. Okay. Three films have won a five major Oscar sweep, being Best Picture, Best Director, Best Leading Actor, Best Leading Actress, and Best Screenplay, either adopted or yep. original. The first was It Happened One Night in 1934. The other two were from 1975. And from 1991. The Godfather. Nope. Two. I like how he was nope. so confident in that. It wasn't The Godfather. 75? 75. I don't think Godfather. That was before I don't Jaws. Think Godfather won best, had a best actress. This one had a best actress and a best actor. It's got to be Star Wars. That no. has never won those Oscars. <laughs> it's never won and anything. Star Wars was released in 1975. Star Wars right. won our hearts. All right, hold on. 75 and 91. <laughs> So seventy five. You were what, like thirty? <laughs> I was I was eight. Thanks. Um, <laughs> I was a junior in high school. <laughs> Ross wasn't even a zygote. I give up, David. What is it? Anybody else? Seventy five. Christina. It's a wonderful life. You're a little late on that one. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. It's uh, I think it's based on a poem. But the name of the the title of the film is based on a poem by Rudyard Kipling. Uh, that. Um, uh, one flew east and one flew west, and one flew, flew over, over the cuckoo's, cuckoo's nest. nest. Oh my gosh! Just oh, watched. Nice. We just talked. Just about watched that. a Jack Nicholson movie last night called "Something's Got to Give." Very, very good movie. So good. Yeah. Very okay. good movie. 1991. Silence of the Lambs. 
Exactly. Yeah, what? that's yeah. what's up. That's what's up. He got one right. Okay. Yeah, but he nailed it right away. He yeah, did. I knew that one. Okay. You knew that one? Yeah. Okay. 1984. This is a combined. George Orwell. Uh, oh. This 1984 no. by Van Halen. That's the answer. This is a combined <laughs> music and movie question. This 1984 film had a soundtrack with six songs making the Billboard Top 40. Purple Rain, Purple Rain. Including two number ones, name the movie and both number one songs. And no, When Doves Cry? It's not Purple Rain. Oh. 1984 film with six songs making the Billboard Top yes. 40, including two number ones. Is it The Breakfast Club? No. No. Oh. 1984. I was a junior in... I, the Breakfast Club like I saw but... every movie that came out in 84, so I know I know this. It's going to be so... When you hear it, you're going to be mad. All right, I'll, I'll take my first hint. Oh, the first hint is that one of the number one songs is also the name of the movie. Are you sure it's not Purple Rain? I'm sure it's not Purple Rain. The soundtrack had nine songs on it, and six of them made the Billboard Top 40. Footloose? Saturday Footloose. Night Fever. Footloose. 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 Did Ross Green get that right? Ross got Nice. Footloose. The answer, the answer is Footloose, and the, one of the number one songs was Footloose by Kenny Loggins. We still need to know the second number one song from the movie Footloose. Uh, that would be Quiet Riot, Bang Your Head. Nope. <laughs> but that was in the movie. It was one of the top 40s, but it didn't make number one. Okay, um, what was the other number one? was by Denise Williams. Maniac. No, that's from Fame, I think. <laughs> Dang it! Or from... or from uh, uh, The other one. The other dancey, dancey movie. Yeah, Flash like, Dance. Flash, Flash Dance, Dance. Flash yes. Dance. I'm picturing the water and the yeah, chair. That's that, but that's, that's the wrong. Okay. And the leg Guys, warmers. I was like seven years old. I don't know. I was three. Six. That was great. The, uh, the, and I'm kind of embarrassed I didn't know Wait, all of them. What was the other song? Let's hear it for the boys. Let's hear, Let's hear it, it for song the boys. Sucked. I love that song. <laughs> totally no, sucks. bang your head. Bang your head. I saw Quiet Riot in concert. First row, folks. First row. Listen, Ooh. I got to say, I really like that our guest and sponsor brought a bit. That was fantastic. And Dave, you are not the expert on all things music and film from 1975 to 1999. Well, I'm, a, I'm an expert on all the good things. Okay. All right. I'm quite right. Let's, What's uh, let's, next, Chrissy? Okay. Here's, here's another question we have for you guys. With the Ross quote, which always makes it better, if you are an ethical appraiser, shouldn't you be able to work for both sides? And I know that most of you, I think all of you, have done work or do work consistently for both sides, meaning the condemning authority and private landowners or corporations or commercial or whatever. Here's Ross's quote. Are you ready? Ross, this one's kind of incriminating. Quote, there's no appraiser who actually tries to hit the target because they're all beholden to who's paying the check, end quote. Number two, quote, I don't know any appraiser in the world who is trying to hit the target, end quote. Oh, Ross? Oh I defend those. The target for me is fair market value because that's the legal standard in the case. Now, we've already established that they might be under different instructions from their client about what they're actually supposed to be doing. Um so, there you go. Not to mention, I'm not saying it's intentional. It's not a mens rea situation. It's, if you're working for the landowner, you're finding ways to make it so that the property is damaged and that the square foot value is higher. Actually, when I do work for property owners, I typically do a staged assignment. And that way, they pay me up front for each stage. And then at any point, the attorney for the landowner can say, we don't like your estimate by 
and then it's not discoverable. And that way I never put my ethics at issue and always do the right thing for the fair market value of the property. I don't care who hires me. My job is to estimate that value and the impact to the property remaining, if any. David? Well, I take some pretty serious exception to what Ross said because, you know, several times in this podcast, he has defended himself by saying, well, it's not you guys, it's everybody else. Well, let me read this quote. I don't know any appraiser in the world who is trying to hit the target. That sounds a little bit like an absolute to me and probably includes Brian and Christina and I. And that is not true. There are lots of appraisers in the world who are trying to hit the target. And yes, there are different assignment conditions and dates and definitions and parcel definitions and compensable items. But we always try to hit the target. And frankly, hitting the target is in both clients' best interest, whether you're working for the condemning agency or for the property owner, because good condemning agencies don't want low numbers. They want fair numbers. And the ones I work for, and I think the ones that Brian and Narwa and Christina work for want fair numbers. And good property owners' attorneys want credible opinions. They want credible work that can be supported in court. I sometimes tell property owners when they're pushing me that, you know, you got to stay inside of the envelope. You, you get outside the envelope, you're not credible. And if you're not credible, you're going to lose. So, I can take complete exception to this, and you can't say, well, it's not you, because you said any appraiser in the world, and you know all three of us. <laughs> and that was where the hedge came in about it's not intentional. But I don't believe that when people are working for one side or the other, that they therefore somehow moderate their position. Actually, by getting paid up front, there's never an argument about my number. Yeah, Christina, but the problem is if you get paid up front and you come in low each time, word's going to get around. I, I, mean, I, I don't know whether that affects your judgment or not, but that is a fact. Hmm. Well, I do get hired an awful lot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Brian, what do you think? Well, I, I think there is some coercion from from property owner attorneys and also from from agencies and maybe not so much agencies, but pardon me, pendulum land, but some, sometimes from from consultancy firms that, that are representing agencies. Um, I, I've been Im involved in situations, both those situations, and you just have to put your head down and say to yourself, well, I'm probably never going to work for these people again, but I'm just going to do my job. And that's the way you do it. Do you really do yeah. that? Absolutely. And I'm not questioning that. You have he, to. You have no choice. I'm not questioning that he does that because the reality is they get shaken out in market participation so that when you're doing defense work like we do, you see the same handful of egregious offenders over and over and over and over again because the landowner's bar knows who they want to hire to get the made is instructed number, because MAI stands for made is instructed. Wait a second. Uh, I hold that designation. Uh, that they want. And so, just like you and I know, you will see the same three guys in 90% of cases. And then you've got a handful of cases where the attorney representing the landowner doesn't know how to do eminent domain work. So, they hire some random guy, and you don't know who they got. And then, every once in a while, you'll see somebody else. And the vast majority of the cases are done by somebody who's got their, not only their thumb, their entire body weight on the scale on the side of their client. 
Ross, I have been doing appraisal work for 37 years, and a lot of it has been landowner work. And I get hired not because I come up with big imaginative numbers. It's I get hired because I do things right. Sure, I consider the various issues. I do things right, and I can support my opinions. And ultimately, yeah, you have attorneys sometimes who are disappointed in your number, but those those attorneys are not ambulance chasers. They're the exception. They're good, honest attorneys, and they call you back because they want somebody who tells them the truth, and they want someone who could support their opinions. They'd much rather have an opinion that's not as high that you could support than one that's too high that gets thrown out because it's not credible. Yeah, but, David, here, here's, here's what you don't see, and I, I think that we do, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back Ross on this, is – as a condemning authority attorney, and as you know, Ross and I only represent condemning authorities, I don't care what your number is as long as it's honest. I don't want a low number. I want you to hit the damn bullseye because i got to defend it, right? Absolutely. It doesn't matter. I don't, I don't take a percentage of your opinion. But on the other side, on the landowner's side, they're taking a percentage of your opinion, Good and they point. want a high number. Fact. We haven't talked about that. You're right. But that would be attorney motivation, not appraiser that motivation. That would be attorney motivation to pay the appraiser handsomely and over and over and over and over. And Ross is correct. We see the same people. And you know what? We'll see a case. You know, we see the same attorneys on the other side, and then occasionally we'll get a big case, and the attorney representing the landowner doesn't normally do eminent domain. But lo and behold, he or she comes up with the the landowner eminent domain appraiser who appears in 99% of the other case. How'd that happen? I have to agree. There are appraisers who don't do the right thing. And it is very unfortunate because I think it makes us all look bad and gives the whole field a bad view to the public. Yeah, but Do I'll, you think attorneys could relate to that maybe? Yes, we can. And that's, Christina. I think so. I, I want to make this point. This isn't, I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have issue with appraisers. What I have issue with is what I see on the landowner side over and over. Understood. I don't disagree with you. Because there is a that. motivation. That attorney's compensation is tied to the opinion of value. But the appraiser's opinion is not. And it can't be. But if you want to get hired again, it is. But that that isn't that isn't what actually happens. That is that that's is, exactly, that is exactly what happens. What actually exactly happens. what happens. I do have to say that I've appeared on the other side across from appraisers who are like that. And once they do something, testify poorly, but they get their number approved by the court, then there's really nothing we can do. Well, I think the point is there are good appraisers, there's bad appraisers, there's ethical appraisers, there's unethical appraisers. I think we can all agree that we've been spending some really good quality time today with some ethical appraisers who we work with and want to continue working with. And with that, I want to I want to go on to another little something. I got a surprise question for Christina. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Christina is a very big Dave Matthews band fan. I also love Dave Matthews. Yeah, right. I love Dave Matthews. And I actually have just been listening to some Dave recently. And Ooh. I want to talk about favorite Dave Matthews songs. And we're going to ask you to guess Dave Arnold's most favoritest ever Dave Matthews song. I'll tell you what? mine just because for, for fun. Okay. I don't think it gets better than Two Step. It's been around Aww. forever. It's such a happy song. I love Bartender. 
Yes, yes. And When the World Ends. Those are my favorites. Okay. Okay. Good choices. Now, those are not Dave's. Did you say now or meow? Meow. Okay, Always meow. So meow. Uh, we're going to guess Dave's favorite hmm. Dave song. Dave's favorite Dave song. Okay. I'm going to get, you can get up to five hints. Wow. Now, meow. Here's the bad news. If you miss this, you have to buy all of us, uh, all of us, you have to buy all of us oysters today. What? Wait, yep. what? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, no, but don't, don't ask any questions yet, please. Uh, if you get it right, we will celebrate. By you buying us all oysters today. Uh, that sounds like an attorney answer. Oh, well, I'm a relocation <laughs> agent, so I don't know what you're talking about. Uh-huh. Um, uh, okay, so are you ready? Uh, not until we clarify the terms of the yeah. deal. Don't worry about it. Let's move don't, forward, not, shall yeah. we? Okay. So I'm going to give you up to five hints. So. Are you ready? Okay. All right. Born ready. All right. Here's your first hint. This song was released before 1999 and is not a radio hit. Ooh, I like it. Deep tracks only, man. Yep. Do you have a guess? Before 99. It's a little early for a guess. Do you want another one? Yes. Okay. Second clue. It kind of sounds like genie music. Oh, yeah. I'm terrible with song names. Nope, we'll keep going. Are you ready? It's not a fun or happy song. In fact, it might just be a symphony of death. I... Didn't know there was a Dave Matthews song that was a symphony of death. I, I thought you were a fan. I maybe I'm not. I'm kind of confused now. Okay, here's your fourth hint. Quote. Wait, is it Don't Drink the Water? No. That was kind of a radio hit, wasn't it? I don't know. I don't listen to the radio. Who does? <laughs> Everybody just listens to podcasts, right? Yes. Okay. The Pendulum Land podcast. Hello. Okay, here's your last nope. This is your fourth your fourth hint. So go ahead and dream, but not under the table. Mm, so it's from the album Underneath the Table and Dreaming? Under well, the I can't. I am not allowed to give mm. any further information. Okay. Here's your fifth hint. This is the last stop. Your final clue. I got nothing. Apparently, I don't do well oh under my. pressure. That's actually the title of the yeah. song. <laughs> is it This is the Last Stop? It's the last stop. Wait, so am I buying oysters or am I buying oysters? I think you're buying oysters, everybody. Woohoo! I think that contract was Nice job, Christina. Wait, no, what? I thought we were, no, I think we were all on the same page with that. Unconscionable. No, nope. Okay, so Christina, while we're chatting with you, I did want to give you a second to tell us a little bit about uh, the valuation community of practice that you chair. Sure. Well, we actually got upgraded back to a committee last year or year before last. So we're the valuation committee of the International Right-of-Way Association. We meet monthly, and we talk about things that appraisers like to talk about. Can Ross come? I think I'm banned. You're not banned strictly. It would just be tomatoes thrown. There might be tomatoes. How could somebody interested in learning more about valuation find your committee? If you go to irwaonline.org, you could get information about the valuation committee. All right, so we are about out of time. I would like to give each of our esteemed guests some time to give their final thoughts. Brian, you've been quiet. Any thoughts on this episode besides delete the whole thing? Well, first of all, you guys do a fantastic job. It's completely entertaining, and I think it is going to be a real service to the to the infrastructure community. So, so thank you for that, and thank you for having us. And I, I think the main point is that it, you know, appraisal is a balance. It's an art. It's not a science. And uh, as much as as much as we want it to be, plug and play, pop out the number. It's not that way, especially in a mid domain. 
and I don't foresee it being that way in the, in the near future. But there is some technology coming that I think maybe in 10 years, it'll be more so that way. We'll see. Our very good comments. Christina, what do you think? So I am an appraisal geek. I actually use that hashtag quite a lot. I love what I do. And it's very important to me that appraisers do the right thing all the time. I actually teach some for the IRWA to help people understand appraising better. And I love valuation and appraisal review. Eminent domain is awesome because we get to appraise things at least twice. Ross, any, any parting comments? Well, I appreciate everybody taking this in good spirits and having a good time with this. It's been very fun for me. I thoroughly enjoy working with appraisers and appraisals. I do it all the time, every day, because it's at the core of eminent domain litigation work. And if I have a cynical view of it, it is based in reality. I assure you there are uh, plenty of appraisers who do not do what they're supposed to do. And I end up dealing with a lot of them all the time. Um, so that's where my viewpoint comes from on the subject. All right. And David, you as a, uh, one of our stars gets the last word. I'm not sure I'm a star, but, um, thanks Dave. I really do enjoy participating in this podcast. Um, I think the key thing is, is that we as appraisers have to be objective and it can't all be science because we're trying to understand how the market perception works and how markets work. And they're not science. That's why when I teach, I, I, I teach market perception. I teach basic economic principles like anticipation and supply and demand because you can't just plug numbers into three approaches. You have to understand the markets and the economics behind it. And that's something that you do by doing your homework. It's something you do by having 37 years of experience as an appraiser. And as long as you do that, and as long as you are credible and don't step outside the envelope, I, I think that makes a person the appraiser they should be, the appraiser that doesn't piss Ross off. So I hope everybody enjoyed this. And um, I want all of our listeners to know that we're all friends here on this podcast. And there were some very interesting viewpoints presented from all sides. And I think they were all valid. And the, the most important takeaway from this episode for me is that if you want to be successful in this industry, you need to work with honest people. And that includes attorneys, appraisers, relocation agents, title examiners, and even honest agencies. So I think, I think that's really the takeaway here is our salary, each of us tie, at sitting at this table is not tied, well, not tied to delivering a particular result. It's tied to delivering a quality and a good result. So this has been a great episode. I'm going to thank everybody, thank all of you for sitting with us today. Hi, I'm David Burgoyne here with my partner, Brian O'Neill, with National Right-of-Way Review Appraisal, and you have been listening to the Pendulum Land Podcast. National Right-of-Way Review Appraisal is a nationwide firm specializing in field and desk reviews of appraisals performed for right-of-way acquisition and eminent domain. We ensure compliance with state and federal regulations, the Uniform Act, USPAP, the Yellow Book, and generally accepted appraisal methodology. Thank you. It's chicken sacrificing voodoo, man.